Hello there and welcome to this week's episode of the journalism.co.uk podcast. We'll be giving those of you who didn't make it to our last News Rewired event a chance to hear from the panel on election reporting and political journalism. Could your election coverage use a refresh? Are you striking the right balance between covering the day-to-day goings-on in Parliament and covering the concerns of constituents? Do you think political journalism is in dire need of new approaches and some innovation? Well, we at journalism.co.uk roped in speakers from The Telegraph, Reuters and The Guardian to discuss their organisation's take on election coverage, the role polls should play in the reporting, the surprise factor in the result of the EU referendum, the US election and the UK general election, and the current state of political journalism. We hope their discussion will help you find the answers to those questions and give you some inspiration to take back to your own news organisations. Over to you, Christian. Thank you. Um, so today we have with us um, Anuska Astana, the political editor of The Guardian, Kate McCann, senior political correspondent at The Telegraph, and Guy Falkenbridge from uh, Reuters UK Bureau Chief. Um, the election was quite a moment, and if there was one moment from it, it probably came at about 10pm on the night of the 8th of June when that, um, that exit poll was announced. Um, if you find yourself with 10 minutes to kill and an internet connection later today, one of the amusing things you can do is go back and look at the live blogs and see what people posted on the live blogs when they saw that um, exit poll come out. My favourite, I think, is on the New Statesman. It's still up there, if you want to have a look. It has 10pm. The BBC exit poll is out, and they list the details. At 2 minutes past 10, it says, you know that scene when the Death Star blows up and they all cheer? That's basically the three of us right now. So um, their reaction was probably pretty predictable there, I suppose. But it's safe to say that it caught everybody by surprise. Political parties, newspapers, uh, certainly looking at the TV coverage, um, everyone other than John Curtis, who was his calm, usual self, up in the gallery defending his poll. Um, But there were some good conversation points that came out of that. One, obviously, about polling. One about the... Fleet Street powerhouses, um, safe to say that there were an awful lot of those strong papers that have kind of bossed elections in the past who went in a certain direction and didn't get their way. Um, and the third, on my mind, is social media and how it's, um, it was probably the election where social media came of age, both for the result and also for how readers were engaged. So with no further ado, I'll hand over to the panel. And uh, Aniska, did you want to open up? Okay, thank you very much. Um, I joined The Guardian just over a year ago, and one of the things that I was first struck by was their attitude towards polling, because they were all a little burned by a splash that they had in the 2015 election that basically said, the day the polls turned with a massive picture of Ed Miliband. And Obviously, it didn't go quite that way, and they had a real think about whether or not it was correct to use polls in the way that we had done. Because as we all know, they are very, very exciting things, um, and they can cause the news as much as they can you know, follow the news to some extent. As a result of that, at The Guardian, we don't top stories on national polls, and um, we, we use polls. We actually pay a pollster, ICM, to work with us. We put them in a live blog, we might put them halfway down a story, with a very few exceptions. Like the other day, I did do a story on a Labour membership poll because the overall number is half a million as opposed to the whole population. Now, in news terms, this is extremely frustrating. I mean, there have been days where 
our own poll has been the splash in the Telegraph and the Times and other papers, and it's been, you know, paragraph 13, page 7 in The Guardian. Um, now, I've kind of become quite evangelical about this in a way, um, having worked there for over a year now, and let me just explain what it meant in the 2017 election. It meant that when we opened up, the very, very clear message from the editor was, we are not going to be led by the polls, even though the Tories at that point were being um, put down for a landslide majority, we were not going to be focusing on that in our reporting, and we were going to try and just kind of focus on the story as it went. There's a bit of a mea culpa from 2015, not just for The Guardian, for everybody, in that we allowed ourselves to be carried away by the idea of a hung parliament. And although I think it's a bit overdone, the idea we didn't talk about policy, we did talk about policy quite a lot. We probably didn't talk about it quite as much as I think we should have done. And so we were quite determined that that wasn't going to be the case this time. Um, again, quite frustrating. In fact, during the Brexit referendum, our poll turned to Brexit a few weeks out, and we didn't splash it. Would have been great if we had. Um, but, you know, if you'd looked at page 7, paragraph 13, you would have found The Guardian predicting Brexit. Um, so... There are ups and there are downs, but actually it has been a massive up in this election because what Kath Viner, our editor, said from the start was our reporters have got it right in the past and the polls have got it wrong, and so we need to trust our reporters. And so we had this really broad look at how we were going to um, cover the election. There was the, the political team, which is um, the team I'm in, which was essentially focused on getting the news, following the daily news, trying to break exclusives, following brilliant exclusives like Kate McCann's leak of the Labour manifesto, which caused me great headaches for days, but it was also absolutely brilliant and a real highlight of the entire election. But also, she wanted way more than that. So we had video. We had John Harris and uh, John Demokos, who do the Anywhere But Westminster series, out for the entire election period anywhere but Westminster, talking about what was coming up in various constituencies. I did a couple of 10-minute pieces during the election trying to look at a different angle. You know, I did, are the Tories becoming the party of the working class at the beginning of the election? And then later on, trying to understand the Corbyn factor. Um, and during those, I got some instincts about how the election was going. And I, like I think we all do, you struggle between what the polls are saying and what your instincts are saying. And although it would have been easy for me to have said, having been to loads of Corbyn rallies, it's really obvious that, you know, there's something happening here. You've got to kind of restrain yourself because you are at Corbyn rallies, so it's not necessarily representative of the whole population, although it turned out it was, it was representative of more people than we thought. Um, Kath also wanted what she called deep dive journalism, six journalists in six key constituencies for the entire election to try and see what was going on, things like places like Harrow West, Birmingham, Erdington, Cambridge, etc. Polly Toynbee spending the entire time doing austerity in Knowsley. We had a weekly podcast and a daily podcast with Johnny Friedland and Owen Jones. You're talking about social media, we tried all sorts of things like Facebook Live, has anyone ever done that? Well, I do it sometimes, a, lot, a bit like a numpty, standing there with my phone, talking to people live on Facebook. Um, some of the questions are really good. Some of them are completely ridiculous. Um, and actually, social media was also a big thing for the parties, which maybe we can talk about later. I also did Peston on Sunday during the election, where we do use a lot of data and put stuff up on screens. And we did a little um, experiment on trying to target Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May fans um, and found out that Jeremy Corbyn 
has this kind of organic wave-like thing on um, social media, which was that people loved him so much on that format that as soon as you put something out to Corbyn supporters, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and ended up in loads of timelines. I thought all of that um, was very, very interesting. Um, we also had this kind of issue with The Guardian has a lot of Corbyn supporters who read our paper and read our website and um, trying to walk down the path of knowing that and understanding that and being fair to Jeremy Corbyn without being biased to Jeremy Corbyn was quite a difficult thing to do. Um, I think we did our best and we had the odd perhaps mistaken headline, but other than that, I think we did really well. Um, and to their frustration, while we didn't focus on the Tory landslide polls, we also didn't focus on the tightening polls. So they were saying we were being biased against him at that stage, which was quite interesting. But overall, I think it is the right attitude to say polls are an important part of the jigsaw. They are useful, but they are very, very complicated. They use methodology that makes assumptions. They adjust massively. And we made a mistake in 2015 not to couch them enough. And I think we did better in 2017. But clearly, we were also very shocked in the Guardian headquarters when that poll dropped. Okay. Um, well, I won't repeat everything that Anushka has said, because a lot of the things that the Guardian did, the Telegraph did as well. So we were very keen uh, in this election on video, for example. We were very keen on social. We were very keen on trying to get people involved in our coverage. So we ran massive ad campaigns. Um, so I won't repeat everything uh, that Anushka's already said, but I think one thing that comes through from political journalists, and certainly the Telegraph team in the lobby, is that when uh, Theresa May announced that election, the sense of excitement in our room was just palpable, which is a bit sad, really, maybe, because <laughs> we were probably the most excited about from anybody in the lobby that we work with. But it's one of the things that really drove our coverage forward. So everyone in that office loves working in politics, loves elections, loves getting out and about, and I think... What our team tried to do was try and fit what people love doing into the election coverage. So Chris Hope, for example, absolutely loves being anywhere but Westminster. And uh, Laura, Laura and Jack are kind of two live bloggers. They love asking difficult questions. So any opportunity to put a question to Theresa May at a press conference was theirs to take. And I think that's one thing The Telegraph did really well, was trying to put people in places that weren't uh, Westminster all the time. So I went on Jeremy Corbyn's final 500-day rally, for example. Um, but what Anushka points out about polling is that people can get very overexcited. You've got a very excited team of journalists already, and a big poll comes in saying Tory landslide, and it's really easy to run away with that. And I think a lot of papers did get very excited and run away with that theme. The one thing I don't think happened, though, I don't necessarily think the polls got the early part of the election wrong. I think people actually changed their minds. And I think the one thing that maybe we'll talk about later is how the papers reacted to that shift and whether we were responsive enough to that, because I think in some cases we probably weren't. Um, but, you know, a lot of our election coverage, as I said, focused on getting out and about. Video, social, massive part. You've talked about social media. I think that's something we should pull out again, because... In some cases, it's very difficult for newspapers to really latch on to that social media, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn revolution. Was it real? Was it just among Corbyn supporters? How do you measure it? Because the polls certainly didn't and can't. And that's one thing that I think going forward we need to find a better way of doing. So lots of things to pull out. But, um, but yeah, I think the Telegraph, very similarly to you, tried lots of different methods in this election. Got to mention your leak. Come to yeah. that later. <laughs> <laughs> very modest. Um, <laughs> I suppose the, 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 the phrase that jumps out to me from this election is nothing has changed um, because it's uh, such an interesting phrase given that actually um, almost everything has changed. And I suppose 
one of the things I would get across from my feelings of covering this election is um, simply how um, I think it's good to be humble and to realise the extent of the crisis that we're actually living through in the United Kingdom right now. I mean, if you just take this election, it's actually a function of a much bigger, bigger issue, which is Brexit. And Brexit was sort of overhanging this election so much. But not only that, we also had, during this election, three attacks on the UK, which were, uh, you know, that was the top news in the entire world for those weeks. If you look at our readership data on Reuters globally, uh, the election was the most read story several weeks. Uh, and that gives you an indication of, of how the United Kingdom is, is being seen. And I think one of the things that's really come across to me since uh, the start of last year is how unpredictable this entire story is, actually. I think it's, it's very rare in the United Kingdom that you get a political crisis of this depth and a crisis that goes across all of the economic and the financial and the business uh, sectors as well. And I think that's one of the things that really comes across in this election. Uh, and nothing has changed, I think, was one of the great phrases because it, it, it was just so, um, so untrue, actually, because everything has changed. And I'll leave so, it there, I think. Um, that's a good point to jump into what has changed then. Let's, um, let's go back to polling briefly because it was the story of the election. I noticed in preparation for this, I had a quick look at the um, YouGov website this morning because YouGov did um, a poll which ran on the front page of the Times, um, which did say that a hung parliament was, um, was possible um, and that got everybody talking. Something that I observed was that um, lots of the journalists who had gone for the deep dive sessions and spent lots of times in constituencies, both at our papers and at other papers who I was speaking to, um, were quite dismissive of that poll, actually. They were saying, well, this, this poll makes lots of assumptions, and you're right about the level of data manipulation on top of all these things. It's incredibly complicated. And their argument to me at the time was, um, don't get too carried away with this, because we've been there, and it doesn't feel like that's really happening out there. So it's quite interesting for me, because you think about how to plot your course for the future. Um, questions like, can we really live without polling? I mean, the political parties can't live without polling. I'm not sure... Readers can really readers want to know what's going on. It's our job to provide that, um, but also to take it with a pinch of salt. The um, the other article that leapt out at me from the YouGov website was there was the headline. Um, so having had the poll, the one poll that kind of correctly predicted what was going on, um, they followed up with final call poll. Tories lead by seven points and set to increase majority. So even the polling company that got it right then subsequently kind of fell back into line with the rest of the crowd. So is there a pressure for these polling? figures to just kind of fall back in line with the crowd? I don't think there's necessarily a pressure for them to fall in with a crowd, although there's certainly a lot of pressure on pollsters in this election, way more than any other election, to get it right. I just think it comes down to this question of whether it was possible for anyone to ever predict this election. I mean, anybody who went to a Corbyn rally was blown away by... I mean, it, it, was, it was like a religious experience. There were people crying in the streets, you know? People mm. were... I've never experienced anything like it. And there were people who were saying, you know, in some towns saying, oh, I've voted Tory all my life, but, you know, Corbyn, I'm going to vote for you. And he, had, and he was brilliant. That's, what, that's where he works the best. You know, he's a great campaigner. People love him because he's normal. And you can speak to him and take a selfie with him, and he's good company. But that was in those specific areas. And you'd go to other areas. You know, members of my family who voted Labour all their life were voting for Theresa May because they couldn't bear voting for Corbyn. It was almost impossible for anyone to predict, but I do think there is a question about 
okay, on election night, even the political parties, Labour, Labour didn't think they'd won. Labour didn't even think they'd come close to winning. Labour thought they were going to have an awful night. The Tories thought they were going to be ahead. They've got their own, own polling, which up to now has always been incredibly effective, but never released, so always kept behind the scenes. There's a question about whether that kind of polling is good for them, whether we need to give less space to polls in our newspapers, because you're right, it leads the coverage. It certainly leads it in our paper. You know, if you get if you get a poll saying the Tories are 40 points ahead or whatever, you're going to put it on the front page. It's and the way they, the way that certain <laughs> sectors of society's behaviour is predicted. So the key thing here was the youth vote, right? Yeah. So people were basing a lot of polling on. Um, they would ask, you know, a thousand young people, and they would say, well, how many young people actually turn up to vote? Well, actually, in this instance, you know, the answer was a hell of a lot more than have done at previous yeah. elections. So. Well, they, the, the interesting thing is, one of, and this is one of the things we did on Peston towards the end, is uh, the, one of the differences between the polls was whether or not they assumed lots of people were going to turn out among the youth vote or not. And, you know, I think that YouGov model basically asked people, will you turn out, while the ICM model assumed the same number of people would turn out this year as turned out last time. Um, and that's why I think you've got to be very careful with them. And actually, normally, they do tend to trend together because they're all a bit nervous, and so they all sort of go together, so they can all be wrong or right together. And this was the first time we actually had the polls doing quite different things, which I thought was quite interesting. I mean, I agree with Kate, something changed. I mean, I remember being in the North at the beginning of the election, and Northern working-class people who had voted Labour for generations their families had were saying, we love Theresa May, we're going to vote for her, we can't ever vote Labour again, they threw open the doors on immigration and all this sort of stuff, and genuinely loved her. Um, and then, A, when you went back to those seats, that had, I did think that had shifted. I mean, it's true that the Labour MPs up there, on the day of the election, were telling us it was going to be a 100-plus majority to the Tories, um, which I think there's various reasons for. But um, the other thing that she... I mean, Theresa May couldn't have got it more wrong I mean, you know, what a message to tell people who were on the brink of thinking you were a complete hero to basically try to do in an election this really complicated and not great social care policy. That was quite big. The reason the MPs were getting it wrong, although I think the Tories towards the end were starting to pull people back to seats they suddenly realised might be at risk, like, for example, Battersea, which, which Justine just held on to, Justine Greening, but they had to bring them back in the final week because they suddenly realised, oh, God, something's going on here. But, you know, these MPs use a recorded register, so you go back to doors of people who have voted before what they didn't do was knock on the doors of people who never voted. And guess what? Thousands and thousands of them in different constituencies around the country came out for Corbyn. And that was one of the reasons that they weren't able to predict it. With um, the social media um, trends that we all saw, I mean, everybody now pays, you know, I'm assuming in all our newsrooms, we're, we see an awful lot of data, we see what gets big reach, we see what people are engaging with. Um, did you see any patterns emerge of a new kind of journalism or a new kind of story that people are picking up on and highly engaging with? I'll give you an example um, from ours. We, I mean, we did, we did, we had great social media reach over the election. In May, we had the biggest um, reach over that period um, of the UK publishers. And our top post, which I read about on an external analytics um, blog, was not about uh, was not a kind of traditional newspaper headline, if you like. It wasn't about policy, it wasn't about some a gaffe or a U-turn. I think the headline was um, 90,000 young people sign up to vote in one day. It was, a, it was a level of youth registration, which did seem to tap into that kind of uh, possibly momentum shared um, Corbyn rally young voter type of story. I mean, did you see anything in what came back from those analytics that showed you what people want to read these days? I think you certainly see analytics that show 
that those articles talking about momentum style um, campaigning do really well. My question would be, is that because Momentum shares them on Facebook and they are basically talking to an echo chamber? So is that our readers who really like reading that stuff? Or is it just a very sort of narrow but incredibly engaged group of people who were always going to try and read it and share it amongst themselves and it goes round and round in a circle? I'm not convinced that those two groups are the same and I think that's something that newspapers really have to grapple with. How do you... So what works well online for the Telegraph, for example, wouldn't necessarily work well in the paper because our audiences are not necessarily the same. So how do we match up those two people? That's, I suppose, how we make the newspaper a success going forward and hopefully someone will crack it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the stuff that does well online is always the stuff about Corbyn for the Telegraph. Every, you know, anything with Jeremy Corbyn's name in the headline is going to fly and always has. But I think there's a danger of just doing articles like that because you know they're going to do really well and actually not getting into the real nub of the stuff that's going on and, then, and I think that's maybe where we lost our way a little bit as Anushka says you know things changed did we pay enough attention to that did we give it enough did we really look behind it or were we looking on the surface and, and I'm not sure that you know I think that's where we need to look for the future to make sure that we get it right again the thing with social media as well that, that worries me is I think that there are a lot of people smoking their own dope basically so they're reading they're reading what they want, to, what, what they agree with, or what they want to read, and they sort of get positive reinforcement, and then they build their consensus on all of that stuff that they've read. There, I do think a lot of that goes on in social media. And tell me, how different is that to the classic Fleet Street newspaper constituencies? I mean, you know, if you're a Daily Mail reader, you're probably going to have a certain view of Jeremy Corbyn. And yeah. one of the observations to make about the election, the, one of the really striking things for me was that the those Fleet Street powerhouses, maybe we can use a phrase Tory tabloids here because they're not represented on the panel, but that's um, possibly bad behaviour, but they backed, um, yeah, they went in a certain direction. I mean, the coverage of, for instance, Jeremy Corbyn was pretty, um, was pretty surprising, I think. I mean, I think, you know, in, in some cases it went, um, it certainly went to the full limit of what we've seen before. Um, and yet the, the, the expectation from that would be that you would see a result that we didn't get. And I wonder whether that is actually in its own echo chamber and how different that is from social media if the, if the newspapers have very set constituencies of voters and they send very loud messages to the converted. Um, I, I can't quite see the difference between that and social media in some ways. No, I, don't th I think that in social media you have a choice to, of what you, what you click on, yeah? When you open a newspaper, you can't, can't just yeah. block out you, certain You can choose a newspaper. On the, on, well, you, yeah, you can choose your newspaper. <laughs> you don't have to pick that one up. No, you yeah. don't have to. But on, on, the, on, the, on the polling, I think the newspapers actually did report the, the polls tightening. Um, maybe they didn't do it enough, mm -hmm. yeah. but I mean, the Observer certainly did. Was, 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 I remember being here very late one Saturday night because we were waiting for the front pages. And so the, the big newspapers actually did report the polls tightening. The question is whether they had their emphasis Right, whether they put it high enough up the agenda, basically. Well, I mean, but also, should you put it up the agenda, or should you just be looking at these campaigns without assuming what is going to happen and trying to talk about what they're saying and what they're offering? I mean, that is the kind of difficulty, because had we focused really heavily on that and then it had been a massive majority for May, we would have been out of step. The point was, the polls aren't always the story. And, and on that kind of... I mean, the newspapers came out of this quite badly, really, because the truth is that the kind of scaremongering about Jeremy Corbyn, which I thought was OTT, and I mean, not that it's not legitimate to ask questions about his past, of course it is, but it just got to such a scale that I think people were almost turned off by it, number one, and B, you know, I say I'm, you know, pretty much middle-aged, I remember the IRA, but a lot of these young people who 
are, um, you know, in their eyes, presumably, they think, well, the government talked to the IRA. In their eyes, things have moved on dramatically since the 80s. So it sort of felt like it was kind of out of step with where the campaigns were. And I do think social media, I agree with you that it can be an echo chamber, particularly something like Twitter. But Facebook is just so powerful. I mean, it is just extraordinary how many people use it and how many people now use it for their news. So, you know, the way you get to people through that is, and it is a different crowd. You know, I know when we do a Facebook Live, it feels quite different, the type of people are asking yeah. questions than other things, other ways that we engage with people. Um, it's not the letters page, is it? You know, it's, 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 it's quite a distinctly different saying. But I think, I think you have to report those polls, yeah? Because yeah, we did report those, them. Yeah, I'm saying you don't go crazy on them. No. I mean, we, we, we did actually hit them pretty hard because they were market moving as well. Yeah. They were moving yeah. sterling all over the place. So, I mean, there was massive interest in financial markets across the world on what those polls were showing. So, I think you have to report them. Let's say one poll, raw data, and I don't, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, it's raw data gave a two-point gap between the Tories and Labour right at the end. They then adjusted that to an 11-point gap. Right? And that was based on their assumptions. Now, I'm not saying that that's not legitimate. I'm just saying these are not quite, you know, these are complex things and we have to treat them in a complex manner. And I just think we all made a bit of a mistake in 2015 by basically making the entire election a question of what the hung parliament would look like. But and I mean, that picked up on, on, on what Kate was saying about going to those Corbyn rallies, yeah? I mean, yeah. that sort of old school reporting on the ground actually was giving us more of an indication of what was going to happen. And they that, weren't that, just kind of people that, on the hard left. I mean, this is the thing, and this was the same yeah, with his leadership campaign. They were just like, there were teachers and nurses, and, yeah. you know, I remember being in Middlesbrough in the pouring rain, and there was just, you know, you're kind of like, wow, what is going on? These people had waited four hours for Corbyn in the rain. Um, and just completely ordinary folk. And you just think, so my instinct actually was by the end, something is happening. But again, I was like, but, you know, you've got to, all your bias is probably affecting it because, you know, your friends on Facebook are probably quite metropolitan and the people at the Corbyn rallies are probably quite out there. Um, but yeah, it turns out. This it, isn't just, it isn't just the election where this happened either, was it? The Brexit as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Although the polls did show Brexit coming. So tell me, if we. If we let polls take a backseat in coverage, maybe we engage with policies more. Do you think there's an issue here for the lobby whereby the, the framing of the whole discussion and the coverage tends to be so focused on the leaders and their U-terms and their gaps and what goes on in lobby that it's ne not necessarily in touch with what people are caring about in the northeast and the northwest in, in No, I don't think so because I think that's one of the things that my paper does particularly well. It knows its audience and it absolutely hammers those points home. So if you don't find a story about pensions or social care in the Telegraph, I mean, come find me every day. There is one because we write them every day because our audience care about that stuff. That's what we're meant to do. That's what our paper's there for. But I think, I think we did focus on them, and I think that was the moment it turned. I think that manifesto launched. One of the things that we've not talked about at all, the student vote was up, but actually the older vote was down. People, older people didn't turn out to vote, and that is really, really rare and unusual, and something that we haven't really... I don't think we've really looked at that, and that, that is what actually harmed the Tories. They probably could have got away with it if that vote had held up, or they certainly would have done a lot better. So do you think rather than those subjects you described, the, the classic... Um areas for your coverage which sound like the kind of things that would be read by an older mm -hmm. demographic. Do you think we'll see a switch to 
um, a lot of youth issues, a lot of young issues dominating politics in the future. Well, we're seeing those, we're seeing both in the Telegraph now because the people, our readers who care about social care and pensions also have children who care about trying to buy a house. So, and they care about their kids getting a house because they've got to find a way to give them a deposit. So we cover both ends of the spectrum. So you quite consciously have uh, stories targeted towards younger people going out on social and stories targeted towards older people going Yeah, that's print. what I, I think that's what I mean about our online coverage is different in, in tone and also in subject matter to our paper coverage. And we sort of try and marry them across. And, and that's what we're beginning to do more of. We're beginning to put more of that stuff in the paper. Um, but I think that I think what your question about policy, did we focus enough on policy? I think the answer to that is actually we did on and we right do. On the right kinds of policy, what people were really interested in rather than what politicians are I think so, be because I think social care is one of the biggest issues of this election. And I think that was the moment it turned. You look at the manifesto launch. Theresa May tried to. She thought she was so confident in her polling that she thought, well, I can give them you know, a, a bitter pill here. We've got to sort all these issues out and now's the time to do it. And actually, she judged it completely wrong. People needed a bit of hope. They needed a bit of optimism, and they didn't get it. And that, that was the moment when, as Anushka says, you know, it shifted. And that's when we didn't and really pick up on it quickly enough, I think. Although, you, did, you know, the coverage was really affected by the terror attacks. So yeah, actually, the day that the social care stuff was really getting out of hand, I mean, one of the most extraordinary things yeah, was the was first edition night. of The Telegraph. Yeah. You know, The Telegraph really went for Theresa May that night. It was all kind of chaos in the Tory party. Mm. You know, I think Gordon had written it, Gordon Rayner. And, you know, I was actually like, I always went, you know, went in and said, actually, you know, that is quite a brave thing to do on a day like this in The Telegraph. Mm. Um, and then that was, of course, wiped off the front pages by, um, I think it was the Manchester attack. Um, and it totally changed how we felt. And what was interesting was, I think a lot of people probably assumed the terror attacks would be to Labour's disadvantage in the election because they thought that Jeremy Corbyn's response yeah. was quite controversial. But there's no real evidence that they yeah. affected Labour. Mm. But I'm not sure we also. I'm not sure that the journalists focusing overly on the on the leader is is wrong. Also, because one of the most damaging things was not only the the, the U-turn and the presentation and the actual policy itself but the way in which it was sort of U-turned on. Yeah? So that day when, she, when the Prime Minister stood up at that press conference was just, I mean, that was an amazing was story. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was one of the key moments of the campaign. And so that, yeah. that was the right focus to have on that day. And they had made it all about her. Well, well, that's the yeah. point. Yeah, they made, they made, made the whole election her. all about her. And actually, yeah. this election is a return to two-party politics in a way that we haven't necessarily seen for quite a while because you've got you know, a very well-defined Labour Party offer, quite left-wing, and a, and a Tory offer that's really distinctly conservative. And, you know, there's people arguing for the centre ground, but this would be the first election in a while where you've really got a split. And people, and actually I think that's one of the problems was we assumed that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn would be such a turn-off that people would vote Tory, but actually this election just undermined, uh, underlined for me that if people vote Labour, that brand is so strong that they held their noses and voted for him anyway. You know, and, and, some, and, and even the people in the beginning who were saying, oh, maybe I might switch Tory, actually didn't. They couldn't bring themselves to. So I think it's splitting. It's really dividing the party lines rather than sort of... And I think that is about leadership. That is about the distinct leaders that they've got. And perhaps we're dividing the country as well. We've got a very polarised country. We've got a very yeah. polarised um, uh, Westminster here. Do you think that there's an appeal to be made to centre-ground readers? Um, if we have in social media, if we're describing echo chambers, it seems to be dragging everything further apart that we have, you know, the hard left and the hard right um, getting very uh, active in sharing and engaging. Um, and we have the same thing perhaps happening or always happening on Fleet Street, really, where you have very well-defined tribes. Um, 
Where do we, I mean, are there readers in the middle anymore? Um, should we be trying to contact them? Do we? I'm sure there's, I mean, you see what happened in France. There's clearly a desire for centrist politics out there. Um, but what trumps, basically, mm. sorry, Trump. you what trumps, yeah. what trumps um, the type of politics at the moment is the authenticity of the politician. And, you know, what Jeremy did very well was basically come across as quite a genuine guy. Also, the manifesto, which we must talk about, because the leak of the manifesto probably had a huge impact on the election. The manifesto, somebody was saying to me yesterday, I think it's true, Labour's manifesto was probably to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, although obviously still quite left-wing, and he campaigned to the left of it. And it wasn't all that far away from where the 2015 manifesto was. I mean, it was a little bit, but not a huge amount. And Ed Miliband campaigned to the right of his 2015 manifesto. So, you know, actually, Jeremy probably did compromise. And I think the manifesto almost had as much to do with a lot of things as his excitement um, and what was going on there. I also think the thing we haven't talked about is to what extent did Brexit play in this election. Our instinct was not very much because you didn't tend to hear it on the doorstep, but there were quite a lot of tactical groups that were mobilising people around the country. I mean, I remember people who, I didn't even know they were interested in politics in any way whatsoever, suddenly saying, oh, I'm going out doorstepping for um, a Labour MP in another part of London. And they had been brought into this via a Brexit, anti-Brexit tactical thing. So now Labour has attracted an anti-Brexit vote, but Labour is saying it's going to Take us out of the party. single market. And I, you know, this, the poll that I did lead on the other day, the membership poll, basically showed 87% of Labour members want the party to stay in the single market. And I think that this is going to be a real brewing issue for Labour, but also you know, for everyone. Because Theresa May asked for a mandate on Brexit. She didn't get it because the country is actually still a bit divided on Brexit. But both the parties are explicitly for Brexit, yeah? Yeah, but a lot of people voted for Labour thinking that Labour would stop an extreme or whatever they thought of it, a hard form of Brexit. That's because half of Labour MPs campaigned saying we're against leaving the single market, while the other half campaigned saying we will leave it. I mean, so at some point they're going to have to break one way or the other. I'm just conscious of time here, so maybe we just go to a final question then. Um, let's say, for instance, I know a far-out prediction here that um, maybe there's another election coming along soon and that we have the whole deck of cards thrown up in the air all over again and Brenda from Bristol's got something to look forward to um, once more. Um, what would be the kind of one exciting thing that you would want to try off the back of everything that you've learned that you didn't do um, at the last election over the weekend? Who wants to go first? Hey, Guy, tell us what you would want to do. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think, I think we'd want to get more people out of London uh, on a more regular basis. Um, that's certainly the one thing. And the what, what was successful for us was working in the multimedia teams. Um, we found that that actually created a whole load of new readership that we didn't really anticipate at the start of the election. So I'd do that more. Okay. I think getting out of London is the main thing. Okay, probably another, another front page grabbing scoop would probably be quite high up on your list, but you've already high. done that one in the last election. <laughs> what, what new thing would you, would, you, would you want to run at? I mean, I think it's all, from all of us, it's probably going to be getting out of London more because that's the, really the only way you can take the temperature. Although I would say that we did get out and about quite a lot and it was still almost impossible to predict. So, I mean, I don't know where that leaves us. Um, the Telegraph has made a real effort and actually is doing really well. At, um, particularly on election night, we did a lot of TV stuff. So we started recording our own really short clips. So I think there were maybe sort of five minutes of a roundup of where are we at, what are we doing right now? And those just flew online. And maybe you wouldn't expect that, but they did really, really well. 
So a couple of our correspondents just saying, oh my god, this is amazing, the exit poll, <laughs> what is going on, and talking about where we could go next. And I think that's a really good way for us to go, because it, as you say, engages a whole new audience, and then hopefully we can bring them into the paper and you know, change our coverage a little bit in that way Absolutely. and make them a bit. Um, I think, I mean, obviously all of the same. Um, as we're saying, we do actually have someone analysing polls. I think that should maintain. I'm not completely against them at all. Um, but I think engaging with our members and um, people who kind of go the extra mile for The Guardian, like we already try and do that. We have events for them. You know, I always enjoy it when we have live events that members are particularly invited to um, and when you can engage via sort of live discussions. Both and are pro and anti-corbin. Live. Members in there. Oh yeah, <laughs> and try try to walk the tightrope, which is impossible to walk when you're at the Guardian. A big thank you to all our speakers there who helped make that discussion happen, and indeed all that attended Newsroom Wide on the 19th of July. Now, just before we go, our next Newsroom Wide digital journalism event will take place on the 22nd to the 23rd of November at Reuters HQ in Canary Wharf, London. This will be Journalism.co.uk's 20th Newsroom Wide conference featuring a mix of panels, talks and workshops on the 22nd of November, followed by a full day of training for Newsroom-wide Plus delegates who will be able to register to attend one of the three full-day practical training courses. We hope to see you all there because we'll be looking at the latest trends and techniques in digital journalism in a hands-on, accessible way, highlighting tools, workflows and lessons delegates can then take back to their teams and start applying in their day-to-day -day work. Register now for discounted early bird tickets on newsyourwide.com.